0: Welcome to The Path to Exit, a podcast to help software and internet founders understand the process to raise capital or sell their business.
1: Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Mike Lyon, Founder and Managing Director at VistaPoint Advisors, and this is The Path to Exit. This show is dedicated to helping founders of software and internet businesses understand what it takes to raise capital or sell their business and how to do it well. My guest today is Miles Lacey. Miles is a principal at VistaPoint Advisors. Miles and I have worked together for almost a decade advising founders on transaction options. He's seen thousands of term sheets and has a great sense for what transaction structures are the best fit for a founder's interests. Please enjoy my discussion with Miles. One of the things I've found really interesting in my career is how founders think about the types of transactions they're going to do. And oftentimes they come to us saying they want a particular type of transaction, full sale, majority recap, or minority recap. And the thing we try to talk to founders about is really what are their interests. So are you focused on max liquidity? Are you focused on upside? Are you focused on control? Are you focused on what your role might be? So we actually spend a lot of time helping founders map out These are your interests and the prioritization of those interests. And then these are the transactions that might be the best for you based on those interests. So we're going to talk to you a little bit about these different options and what they mean. I guess to get us kicked off, Miles, can you just give us some foundational level set for each of these transaction types? What are they, just so we're sure we're talking about the same types of transactions?
2: Yeah, so when we're talking with our clients about which transaction they'd like to pursue, we're generally focusing less on the type of transaction and more on really their motivations. And so a couple of those would be go forward role or involvement post transaction, right? So do they want to be active in the day-to-day of the business? Are they looking to pursue a transaction to potentially retire or move on to their next business venture? That's one area. The other would be liquidity, right? So are they interested in taking a small amount of liquidity, retaining meaningful upside, or is this more about cashing out, taking full liquidity, or is it somewhere in between? And then lastly, we typically also think about this from the perspective of control. Some founders are very apprehensive to raise capital because they're worried that they may give up control of the business. Some, they are fine with that trade-off and typically will take more liquidity. And so that's another conversation we go into pretty deep detail with our clients discussing before ultimately kind of framing our process and deciding who we think makes sense to include from a buyer and investor perspective. So I'd say those are some of the key dynamics in terms of the transaction types and how those map out. So in a minority investment to start with, that's typically when you're selling less than 50% of the business. So think of like a series, you know, A, B, C type round. And in a minority investment It actually, from the outside, oftentimes feels like the most straightforward, where the founder would always retain control. Investors tend to be a little bit more quiet and passive. However, this one actually has the most nuance, which we can get into a little bit later. But at least from the high level, typically in a minority transaction, founders are looking to stay on with the business, continue to grow it, and bring out a partner, an investor to really help them along that journey. From a liquidity perspective, generally not a huge driver of these transactions. Perhaps they want to take some chips off the table, but oftentimes it'll be a mix of you know, liquidity as well as growth capital for the bunch. Control, like I mentioned, the reason founders generally choose a minority transaction is because they want to retain control of the business and that's very important to them. And then in terms of just managing the upside, this transaction typically gives the most upside, but once again, it's, it's not quite as straightforward as just that.
1: That's super helpful. So I think as we think about these three deal structures, so the minority, the majority, and the full sale, a quick summary of it. Minority deal, you're going to have the most upside and in theory, the most control. By definition, you're going to get the least amount of liquidity. Full sale is kind of the other end of that spectrum where you get max liquidity and really no control and mostly no upside if it's a full sale. And then in the middle lies the majority recap, which is generally a really good balance of liquidity and future upside. But someone else is in control of the business if they're a majority shareholder. So that's generally how we think about some of those interests. And your role can vary across all those. It kind of depends on how much you want to be involved. But I think let's dig in a little bit to these transactions and talk about some of the nuance there. So probably the easiest one to talk about is the full sale. And so in the full sale, it's really clear what's going on here. You're getting maximum liquidity but someone else owns the business, and in most instances, you don't have any upside unless you were to have some equity that you rolled or you got some RSUs if you were selling to a public company. But I think this one's the cleanest to understand. Um, It's really simple in terms of what's happening, but what we find is founders often make really different decisions about which buyers they want depending on what they care about. So sometimes it's about maximizing valuation Sometimes it's about who do they think is going to be a better partner and grow the business. Sometimes it's about what's best for the employees. But I think that's the simplest transaction to understand. And it's really easy to compare you know, two different full sale transactions because there's not a lot of differences there. Anything else you would add on the full sale?
2: Yeah. The one variability that we see most often is really in the post-transaction role for a lot of founders. Some will stay for only one year to help a smooth transition and then leave immediately. We've had others that actually stay three, four, five years post-transaction and actually continue to basically operate that as a business unit as part of a larger strategic. So that's the one area of flexibility within a, a full sale, but otherwise it's pretty straightforward.
1: Really good point. And I would say, you know we kind of always jokingly talk to our clients that if they do a full sale, we'll bet them they won't be there longer than a year. We bet them dinner anywhere. And usually we're right on that, and it it generally has to do with, if you're a founder running an entrepreneurial business, you make decisions pretty quickly, you end up in the hands of some big strategic buyer, frankly, without a lot of upside. That tends to be frustrating, and these entrepreneurs want to go do something else. So typically, what we're telling founders is we want to agree to a good transition period for the buyer, right? We want to set the signal that we'll be there to help transition the business, but we're probably not going to be there for four or five years. I would say one tip there is you definitely don't want to talk to the buyer like you're going to be there for three years and then change that on them at the end. That makes buyers nervous. I think you want to be really transparent. And if you do want to leave post-deal relatively soon, you need to make sure they have good management infrastructure in place and they're not solely relying on you because that will definitely make them nervous. So I think that's good discussion on the full sale. Pretty straightforward. Maybe let's move to the majority recap, where it gets more complicated because you are getting quite a bit of liquidity. By definition, you're selling more than half the business if it's a majority recap. But there is a lot of upside left for you. So the partner tends to be pretty important. There's, I would say, less control. You're certainly not the decision maker. But if you did like a, a private equity majority recap, you still have quite a bit of control if you're the management team. And then the upside is still there, right? It depends on that second bite at the apple. Anything else you would add about that transaction type and how we see founders make different decisions?
2: Yeah. So this is one that has quite a lot of variability, not only in the control aspect and what the board composition is post-transaction. We've seen founders effectively retain control of the board or at worst make it neutral oftentimes post-transaction. And then to touch on the post-transaction role again, this is one that has a little bit of flexibility and it really makes a big difference when determining which investor is the best partner. And so what I mean by that is some founders, they like the idea of having upside in their business. They're big believers, but ultimately they know deep down inside post-transaction, they eventually want to do something else. And so it's about finding an investor that believes in the vision, ultimately believes they can find a replacement CEO or a replacement management team if there's multiple people looking to leave the business. And that's not for every investor. So some will immediately say, hey, we look to partner with existing management, not replace management. Now, the opposite is also true. Vista Equity Partners is notorious for replacing management teams, and that's part of their whole model. And so if you came to them and said, no, the founder absolutely wants to stay, it may not be a good fit with them, for example.
1: Yeah, good point. One of the things we see a lot is founders make different decisions about which investor based on what they want to do with their role. So for example, if your goal was to leave the business and your biggest priority was how big was the next exit going to be, there are certain more playbook investors that might be the right fit. And we had a client who made that decision a few years ago. We were kind of surprised he picked this investor because We thought it wouldn't be as much fun for him to continue to manage the business. And ultimately, he said he had decided he wanted to transition out, but he thought this investor provided him the most upside. If you're a founder that's going to stick around, you might make a different choice. Those playbook investors might lead to the best outcome, but it also might not be the most fun to execute one of these playbook strategies. And there's other investors who really want to back your vision and what you want to do. So I think you can make a drastically different decision on Majority Recap about the investor type based on what you wanted your role to be going forward. And so I think it's just really important to understand that and be honest with yourself and do some diligence during the process around who you feel like is a good fit. So I think that kind of wraps up the majority recap. Anything else you would add?
2: Yeah, I think one other component, and this I think will be helpful as we get back to contrasting with a minority investment, is around the security structure post-transaction. So in a majority deal, it's very common that the investor and the founder are what's known as peri So they have the same equity structure, the same alignment of interests, no real divergence. And that often is not the case with a minority investment, which is probably maybe a good segue.
1: I would just say, following up to that, good point to look at. Most of these majority deals, you do have the same structure, not always, but still be on the lookout for that or maybe some dividend they might try and sneak in. And as Miles said, that's a good segue to the minority deal we like to refer to the minority deal as the most dangerous deal on the table. And the reason why is it's the most obscure deal in terms of the terms that are in the transaction. And if you think about what you're doing here, you're getting some liquidity, you have the most upside, but you are introducing a new partner. So you could also call it maybe the riskiest deal on the table. There's certainly a lot more upside, but you're introducing a new investor a new board member to the equation and you haven't maximized your liquidity. So this is where you have to be really careful. There's also a lot of complexities that investors have tried to add to minority deals to both take away economics from you in the future and also diminish your control. Because in theory, as the remaining majority shareholder, you should have majority control. So there's a lot of things to look out for and we'll walk you through some of those. Anything you'd add high level on the minority deal before we get into some of those? No, no. I think that's a good place to jump in. I think the other thing about the minority deal is you can't necessarily compare a minority deal to a full sale. And before we get into that, I'll just give you a a quick tidbit of a deal we worked on a few years ago where we wanted a very plain vanilla structure, which we'll talk to you about what that is for a a transaction we were working on, which we almost always advise. We were basically going to sell a convertible preferred. This one investor in particular wanted to give us a junkier structure, so basically it was a participating preferred. And we kept going back and forth around, hey, we're just not really going to consider that if you submit it. Ultimately, what we agreed to is fine. Why don't you just submit both structures? And it was interesting that the structure with the junk in it was at a 30% premium in terms of valuation to the plain vanilla structure. So if there's ever any question about does this structure really matter, there's your answer, right? There's a 30% difference in valuation. So to talk through a few of those terms, Miles mentioned the security structure. This is where you can see some pretty big divergence. We generally are advocating for convertible preferred. And so what that means is the investor can, when the exit ultimately happens, they can either get their money back, so they do have a little bit of a preference and downside protection, or they can convert to common and be treated like anyone else. So that's the preferred structure. Sometimes investors will try and insert a participating preferred, And this is really egregious. Basically, at an exit, they get their money back, and then they get their pro rata ownership. And this can really take a lot of economics away from founders. They try to sell it to founders as, you know, if you reach a certain cap, it won't apply. But this is really a no-no in our mind, particularly in any competitive process. We wouldn't consider it. And if you get a term sheet from an investor with that in there, I would think twice about are they a good fit for you? They're likely a value investor and trying to take advantage of you. Sometimes there's a place for these securities, but it's very rare in today's market. And I'd just be really careful about the participating preferred.
2: Yeah, and, and some investors will even go so far as to have two or three X participation preferences, which effectively guarantees two or three X return on top of their participation as a common shareholder. So if you receive a term sheet that looks like that, that should tell you really all you need to know about that investor's confidence, if you will. Uh, in, in their investment going forward. And they might
1: try to sell that to you by giving you a really high valuation, but if they're guaranteeing themselves a two or three extra return, that's not really the value that you're selling yet. You have to work through all the scenarios. So anyway, something to watch out for there. Another thing that's really common is just control provisions. So they'll either try and get outsized board representation. So in our view, if the majority shareholder has two thirds of the business, they should probably have two thirds of the board seats. Sometimes you'll see investors try and get outside board representation, which we think doesn't make sense. Sometimes you can use an independent to neutralize that so that there is some independent board members in there. But I would say watch out for that. That's definitely a provision we negotiate on a lot and look out for up front. And then there's all these negative covenants that they try to add. So you know you can't sell the company unless they get X return. You can't raise debt. You can't do these other things. Most of those things are pretty negotiable. And I think you just need to understand what's important to you for control. But oftentimes, they'll try and sneak these things late in the process when we're getting to the final documentation. In general, you want to negotiate all of that up front. the minority rights package, when you have the leverage, so when the process is really competitive. What else would you point out awesome. on minority deals? What's your pet peeve?
2: I think we touched on a lot of them. But related to that, I was speaking with a founder recently who was entertaining a minority investment, all liquidity, no growth capital at all. As part of that, they requested basically to retain a majority of of the board uh, and board control. The investor came back and proposed, okay, we'll allow that for today. However, if you miss your projections over a two year period, we will then gain board control and effectively be able to fire you, change the management team, do whatever we please. And so that's a very suboptimal outcome for a founder for a number of reasons, right? On one hand, you're missing your projections, which obviously is is never, never. But now you've just lost control of your company and you did all of that and still own a majority of the business.
1: It's a good point. Another thing that can happen in combination with that is they might have the ability to veto your budget. So imagine a scenario where they control the budget for the year, how much you can spend on expenses, but then they can swap you out if you miss your projections they can basically make that happen in some ways. Now that's not super common, but it is something to worry about and it speaks to how they try to get outsized control. One of the things that comes up a lot with founders is this concept of a redemption right. And I think we're a little bit more sympathetic to the investors, but basically the idea here is they're a minority investor, they probably can't force a sale if they've gotten an at-market deal. But they also don't want to put money into a company and then have you gift the company to your children and have them run it for 20 years. They need to see an exit. So you'll commonly see this thing called a redemption right. And really what they're trying to do is make sure that on some timeline, you will play ball with them selling their shares and doing a good job to help them maximize their valuation. It comes across sometimes in a scary way, where they say after five, seven, 10 years, whatever the case may be, they can put the shares back to the company at the higher of fair market value or what they purchase the shares for. This really rattles founders because it looks like some type of economic impact that could come five or six years down the road and they may not have the capital to do that. Really, that conversation is geared towards having a discussion about their exit and making sure they can get an exit in a timely fashion. So usually we end up negotiating some interesting things around us agreeing to help run a process to sell their shares and You know, good faith efforts. But just something that comes up a lot, I think really confuses founders because it does seem pretty scary. But if you think about it from their perspective, they do need the ability to exit.
2: Yeah. And I think there's probably even more examples of different security structures that are a little bit deceptive in a minority transaction. But we spend a lot of our time speaking with founders about the structure because it's far less known and because the trade-offs aren't clear. So in a majority deal or a full sale, you are giving up control. But you're receiving liquidity in return. In a minority transaction, it's not quite as clear. And so there's a lot around the details. And frankly, there's a lot that goes into the valuation that I think could be oftentimes misleading, particularly in the financial press or if you go on TechCrunch, for example, where you see really high valuations. It's just oftentimes not the full story um, and not really comparable to a majority transaction or a full sale. And one thing to look
1: out for, particularly with bankers that are conflicted, we've worked with investors before where they'll literally call us and say, you tell us what the valuation needs to be and we'll give you the structure. Back to the fungibility of the structure. So it's really dangerous to compare minority deals because the terms matter a lot. And then in terms of the partner fit, I would argue that the partner fit is probably most important in the minority deal because you have the most riding. So it's really important to understand the value they're going to add. Usually it's around help on sales and marketing. It's not so much around building up the tech team or the product team. It's usually around the go-to-market pricing, packaging, and how to build up the sales and marketing team. But I think you need even more scrutiny on the partner when it's a minority deal just because you have so much riding. And bringing in a bad partner can be really bad for you because you haven't gotten as much liquidity and can really upset the apple cart in terms of how you manage
2: the business. Anything else we should point out on that? No, not on minority investments. One thing I did want to mention about majority investments or a majority recap that I don't think we we touched on is that this is also a great option for differing interests among founders. And so a good example is a couple of years ago, we worked with a corporate LMS business based out of Canada. It was a two co-founder team, 50-50 equity split, One wanted to ultimately walk away from the business, pursue other ventures. The other was very excited about the future, wanted to stay on as CEO and continue to grow it. And so this really presented the perfect opportunity for a majority recap where the investor in this case acquired, I think it was close to 70% of the business. So they bought out one founder completely, offered up some partial liquidity to the remaining founder who then got to continue to grow the business and also have an investor who has done this before and who brought a lot to the table, just in terms of expertise and how to scale a business and some of the growing pains that founders go through.
1: Definitely the interests are divergent. We always say if you have three shareholders, you probably have three different interests, right? People are different life stages. They care about different things. They have different risk profiles. So private equity has done a really good job of solving some of those problems. You could imagine a different scenario where a minority deal would make sense if maybe both of the founders wanted a little bit of liquidity, but one didn't want full liquidity. So I think these private equity solutions can really help solve those situations. In situations where founders want full exit and they might wanna maximize the valuation, usually the strategic buyer still prevails in that scenario. But there are situations and many situations, frankly, where private equity does a good job of threading the needle of providing different amounts of liquidity to different shareholders. And so we see a lot of founders, particularly when there's more than one founder considering those options. So I guess in summary, we walked through kind of a framework for you to use. So I wouldn't necessarily think about this is the type of deal I have to do. It's more of these are my interests. And if you map out and prioritize those interests, then the deal kind of becomes obvious that you should do. The other thing I would just point out in closing is that even if you're pretty sure you want to do one of these deal structures... We think it's important to look at a couple of other deal structures in conjunction. First of all, it makes the process more competitive. So if we were negotiating with a strategic buyer that we really wanted to sell the business to, we might go back to some of the PE firms and ask them to put some more of the junk that we described in the structure because it might help push valuation. That might be nice negotiating leverage with the strategics. If you're thinking about doing a private equity deal, one of the things they're worried about is their ultimate exit and who are they going to sell the business to and is there going to be a lot of interest. If you can show that you have a lot of strategic interest already, that checks a box for them. And then sometimes our founders dramatically change their minds. I would say we've had situations where after spending time with PE folks and understanding what having a board is going to be like in the scrutiny, they don't really want to do that. They'd rather do something else. So keeping your options open until you uncover more about the specific partners and the specific terms is helpful from a negotiating leverage, but you also might change your mind along the way about what you want to
2: do. Yeah. And I would just say the, the opposite is also true, where we've had founders begin a process almost set on exiting the business completely and ultimately moving on. And through the process of conversations with investors about what a partnership could look like and also pitching the business... They get really excited about their business and almost fall back in love with it and then decide, actually, they see a lot of upside and they're really excited about the future. So, yeah, I think it cuts both ways on, on that for sure. Awesome. Thanks, Miles. Appreciate the time. Absolutely.
0: Disappoint Advisors is a founder-focused investment bank that advises software and Internet founders through M&A and a and capital raise transactions. We are a fully unconflicted investment bank who only works for founders on the sell side, so you know that we're always representing your best interests. Security is offered through Vistapoint Advisors, member FINRA, CIPIC. This has been provided for informational purposes only. It is not intended to address all circumstances that might arise. Testimonials from past clients may not be representative of the experience of other clients, and there is no guarantee of future performance or success. Clients are not compensated for their comments. If you have any questions about the process of selling your business or raising capital, reach out to a member of our team, or check out the Four Founders section of our site by visiting forfounders.guide. Bye.